Hi, and welcome to the European Tours Life on Tour podcast. My name is Ewan Porter, and I'm the new host of Life on Tour as we return for season three. Bringing you conversations from around the world of golf, I'll be sitting down with some of the biggest stars in the game across the tour. And what better way to kick off than with reigning Race to Dubai champion and European Tour golf royalty, Lee Westwood. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, I, I did see that on Instagram a couple of days ago that uh, that you were flying home. I assume you're, you're back in the UK and you, you're honeymooning uh, in quarantine, <laughs> I guess. No, we were honeymooning at the US Open last week. I got a, I got my new wife working, so. Uh, but yeah, I'm back in the UK now. I'm back in the UK now, and uh, back in Newcastle, sitting in the house, taking tests every couple of days, having stuff shoved up my nose and down my throat. <laughs> even though, oh, look, even, though I've been, even though I've been vaccinated. Yeah, geez, it's uh, it's an interesting one. I, I'm in Sydney at the moment. We're just going into lockdown for the next week, so uh, yeah, we could do a whole podcast on that, but uh, yeah. We'll uh, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll digress, but yeah. Look, I I won't. I don't want to make this too much of a, a trip down memory lane. I mean, everyone is acutely aware of your uh, your incredible golf career. So I more want to focus on on the resurgence and, and figure we start with 2018 and, and you win at the Nedbank Challenge in in South Africa. It was your first win in four and a half years. Your first win with. Helen, your wife, your girlfriend at the time, uh, on the bag. I can imagine it must have been a pretty emotional experience. Yeah, very. Um, you know, I, I finished with Billy Foster the week before in Turkey, um, and he came up to me the week after in Dubai, and he's, he's like, "Well, you could have waited more than a week to win your biggest ever check." Couldn't you? <laughs> you know, I mean, we still get on, you know, very well as as, as, as mates, and uh, yeah, it was, you know. A lot of a lot of players win tournaments when there's a change of caddy. Um, you know, it's just strange that my te- and different that my change of caddy was to uh, my fiance, so now wife. So um, yeah, you know, I, I've always played well at uh, at Sun City. Um, that was the third time I'd won there, and I've lost in playoffs there. Um, and you know, I just played well from start to finish. Played solidly on the first couple of days, and then shot a good round on the third day, and. Uh, and then a really low round the final day, so uh, yeah, it was uh, it was an emotional win, and um, you know, good to do it with Helen uh, right there. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, only a month before that, uh, you were at Le Golf National in uh, in Paris as a vice captain to Thomas Bjorn. There, did did that play a role in any way for that victory? No, not really. Um, you know, I, I played in many Ryder Cups, so, you know, I, I know what goes on at them and, you know, how well you have to play. Um, I've been playing all right most of the year, but, you know, just things hadn't been quite clicking for me. So uh, uh, it, it was it was more that I think, you know, having Helen on the bag to freshen it up and going back to somewhere that I played well before, uh, good good vibes from there. Um, and, you know, put in a bit better that week, maybe, you know, made some good puts coming down the stretch and certainly on the last day, which had been lacking and... Uh, you know, ended up, I think, winning by two or three. Oh, look, I will chat about the Ryder Cup for a second. Uh, you'd played 10 consecutive Ryder Cups from 1997 through to 2016. That was your, your first time not playing in, in over 20 years. What was your, your main role as vice-captain there? Was it any different to what you anticipated? No, not really. You know, although I had played 10 in a row, you know, the last few of them had been more, you know, 
people coming to me for advice like they would to a vice captain and things like that. So, uh, you know, I, I'd felt like a, a veteran from sort of early in the 2000s to onwards where, you know, people had come up to me and, uh, you know, seek advice and ask what's going to go on and what's happening this week. The vice captain role was felt more like, you know, just watching the guys play and see who was playing well because, you know, you, sometimes how somebody's playing and the results that, that, are, that are showing, you know, they, somebody could win a match, you know, the first morning and not play that well and kind of get away with it. And, you know, some somebody else that's maybe partnering him could have carried the pairing through. So it was very much, you know, being analytical and, and you know, I think sometimes it takes a good player to see how the good players are playing. You know, you could you could say that somebody's making you know a few birdies, but they might necessarily not necessarily be playing well, so they might need a rest that afternoon. So ours was more of a watching brief, I think, as vice captains, and just to give a bit of our, our sort of um, views and impressions to back to the captain because he, I didn't realise how little time the, the the captain had to go out on the golf course and watch some golf. You know, his, his time's taken up with so many other things, um, with sponsors and, and meetings and and things like that. He doesn't actually get to get around all the matches and see how everybody's playing. So, we're kind of his eyes. Oh, look, uh, I mentioned, well, you mentioned the word analytical. Uh, I referenced your first Ryder Cup was 1997, playing under Seve at Valderrama. And, and the last one you played was in 2016 at Medina. Out of those... 10 Ryder Cups and then what you saw in Paris, how much has the dynamic changed with regards to how, I guess, how analytical and, and the stats that are used to uh, create pairings and, and wild cards, et cetera, now? Yeah, they definitely rely more on statistics and uh, and facts now uh, and are much more analytical. You know, we profile the players a little bit to see how their minds work and see how, you know, kind of gauge how they want to be talked to and, you know, what makes them tick the best. Um, you know, using statistics to pair players up um, because, you know, what what the impression of the way somebody plays is not necessarily actually the way they play it. You know, the statistics and um, those kind of things can be very informative when you come in to pair people up. Um, so certainly over the last few years, it's been uh, it's been more what seems scientific than maybe it was when Seve was the captain and, uh, you know, there was a bit more sort of charisma and uh, charisma with Seve and kind of feeding off of him rather than bringing the team all together with uh, with statistics and facts. Well, you've played under many different captains uh, through those 10 Ryder Cups. Tell us about some of the some of the, the different captaincies and, and the camaraderie and, and the way, you know, the dynamics being between captain and the players. I can imagine that's changed quite a bit through the years. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the view of the captain, um, certainly over the last few years, the, the, well, the Ryder Cup itself's changed a lot. You know, it's, been, it's become this big beast now. So, you know, the captain's job is much more intense, more sort of 24-7. You can see how a lot of the captains, their, their own golf has suffered uh, in the two years leading up to when they when they're captain. Um, you don't really have much time for your own game to practice. You know, even though you want to be out there playing with the guys and being close to them and seeing how they're playing, you know, it's t- tough to do that when your game's not. You haven't been able to commit the time to your game, so it's a tough job uh, to play and uh, captain. Um, but uh, you know, over the twenty years, there's, there's, I've had a lot of good captains, and um, you know, all di- di- brought different things to the job. 
Um, some have been analytical, more analytical, like Bernard Langer and uh, and Paul McGinley and Thomas Bjorn, and others have you know got on charisma, like you know Seve Ballesteros and Ian Woosnam. You know, I, I guess twenty twenty one with uh, with the Ryder Cup being in September at, at Whistling Straits, Padraig Harrington as captain, he's he's kind of defying what you said a little bit. I mean, he finished third at the PGA Championship and has been playing some pretty good golf this year. But it's a very realistic proposition that you'll be on that team uh, come September for your 11th Ryder Cup. Is there a particular player that uh, that you would enjoy playing with or perhaps a, a rookie that you'd like to take under your wing? Not really, no. I mean, I, I was obviously a rookie in 97 and further rookie in 99, but learned a lot that year, you know, being thrown out first in the singles and, um, and then from there onwards, you know, I felt, you know, like a bit of a coming of age, you know, transition from rookie to, you know, more experienced player. Um, and, I've, and I've enjoyed, you know, playing with other rookies and trying to bring them through and kind of put an arm around them and letting them know what to expect. But I enjoy playing with the more established players as well. Um, you know, the, the likes of Sergio and Darren, you know, I've, I've got great records with. Um, so I like, I like to, you know, not, not, sort of put pressure on the captain and say, I want to play with this player or that player. I just sort of make myself available to play with anybody. I get on pretty well with most of the people that have been on the team. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm there to, to be paired with anybody, really. I'm a pretty easy team member. Well, I'm sure you have plans to play on at least a couple more Ryder Cup teams. But being the captain of Europe, <laughs> I'm sure that's something that whets your appetite in the future. Yeah, I'd love to be. Um, you know, I've uh, it's a... Uh, it's an honour to represent Europe and it'd be an honour to captain a team, you know, with the, you know, represent those lads as well. So, uh, yeah, I mean, at some point, probably not too far away, I'd like to throw my hat into the captaincy ring, um, whether it's Italy, um, you know, that uh, women being 48 at the moment, I guess that'd be about the right age to do it when it's in Rome. And, uh, you know, it's been mentioned. Um, and just to see how, how I keep playing, really, I think. I mentioned you win at Nedbank in 2018. Uh, fast forwarding to 2019, no wins that year, but certainly some good finishes. Dubai, the Open Championship, and then again at the Nedbank at the end of the year. Uh, I was there at Portrush for the Open Championship, and that was my first time seeing it. And incredible, incredible links layout. I mean, I know the weather was uh, pretty disgusting that final day, but it was obviously a golf course that. Uh, that took to your liking, and also, do you do you see it as a venue that should be on the open uh, rotor going forward? Yeah, I've not played uh, Royal Rush since the uh, Amateur Championship uh, back in the early nineties, and I'd forgotten how good it was. And obviously, they changed a couple of holes as well, uh, and, and got rid of the old seventeenth and eighteenth, and brought the uh, uh, the ones down in on the dunes at the far end, which are fantastic holes, and it. it it really went straight into the top three, if not the the, the top right number one of uh, open championship venues for me. You know, I, I really enjoy Birkdale. Uh, I think Muirfield's great, um, but I think Royal Portrush might be the best of the lot. Well, twenty twenty, it didn't it didn't uh, didn't take you too long to hoist a trophy, winning in uh, in Abu Dhabi in in January, and then obviously COVID impacted the tour for a few months. Upon return, six consecutive top twenties, which you culminated with a runner-up finish at the DP World in in Dubai and winning your first third uh, race to Dubai title. That was a pretty wild finish there. Talk us through that. Yeah, I mean, you know, that was that was a case for just 
just playing golf really and doing your best, especially over those last few holes. You know, nobody could predict what was going to happen over the last few holes and who was going to make birdies and who was going to drop shots and where people were going to finish in the field and who was going to win the, the race to Dubai. So that was, uh, that was a classic example of, you know, just taking one shot at a time and trying to, you know, sh- make the best of it and shoot the lowest score you could and make birdies wherever. So, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was an exciting finish. And uh, at one point, you know, Matt had a... Uh, I think he had about four or five foot of a bogey on 17. And not only did I look like winning the race to Dubai, but also winning, winning the tournament as well. I mean, he knocked it three or four feet past on the last. Um, so, you know, everything was up in the air coming down the last few holes. Mm. Well, that's, uh, that good form carried over to, uh, to this year, to 2021. And back in March, consecutive runner-up finishes at, uh, at Bay Hill and then the Players' Championship in Florida. You're in the final pairing on Sunday, both weeks playing alongside Bryson. Now you've you've played alongside Tiger in his prime. You've you've pretty much seen it all. But I know from the outside, seeing the the, the hoopla and the spectacle around Bryson and the way he was going about things, was it as wild as it appeared from the outside? Being right there alongside him. Yeah, I, I don't think it's comparable to Tiger. I mean, he took it to a new level. Um, but uh, certainly, I like playing with Bryson. I like what he what he's done with his swing and in the gym and what he's brought to the game. He's shaken it up a little bit and and changed the way people sort of view playing golf courses, um, you know, the more traditional way, especially at the major championships like the US Open. He's kind of given people food for thought on, you know, another way to maybe play certain golf courses. So, uh, yeah, he's uh, he's interesting to watch and he says a few interesting things. But, you know, in, uh, on the whole, I think he's fun and, and good for golf. Well, what's your you referenced the golf courses there? What's your what's your philosophy on that? Because it seemed for the for the longest time, particularly in a U.S. Open, it was all about tight fairways, thick rough. You know, you had to keep the ball in play. And then there's, I guess, with with social media, there's a lot of conjecture these days about how a go, how golf courses are designed, and a lot of people saying that fairways should be wider, there should be more runoffs around the greens. What's your take on it? Well, that's the trouble with social media, and everybody gets on there, and everybody's got an opinion. And they're normally misinformed, aren't they? So, uh, you know, um, you know, you look at Bryson, the way he won at, at uh, Wingfoot, and he putted really well that week. You know, he, he, for the distance he hits it, he's act very accurate as well. Yeah, he probably missed a few fairways, and that was highlighted that, you know, he hit it so far up there that most other people couldn't get to the green if they missed a fairway, but he was only hitting a wedge on. There'd been a bit of rain as well, so the greens were holding wasn't possible to do that last week at Torrey Pines and he got found out eventually, didn't he? You know, you're holding those greens and there's a bit bit, bit thicker stuff around the greens. So, you know, there are going to be weeks where that format that he employs works and there are going to be weeks where it doesn't. So, um, he, he's got a lot more uh, shots to his armoury than everybody thinks. He's not just, a, you know, just having a slash at it. You know, if he needs to play a little knockdown iron shot against the wind he can play that and uh, you know he's got a bit of feeling there as well so he's, he's, he's done well to bulk up and hit it a long way but also retain the feel and his short game's got better over the years as well I remember coming down to the uh, Australian opener a few years back at the uh, Australian Golf Club in Sydney and uh, mm. I played with him in the third, third round I think and you know whenever he could get the seven iron out and chip and run it onto the green or even put it onto the green uh, he did it you know his, his short game was quite poor so he's obviously worked on that um, considerably the last few years and uh, 
you know, you can't win a US Open without a good short game. Yeah. Well, look, you said you're a fan of what he's what he's doing in the gym and that as well. I'm interested to hear your your philosophy on that because I know when I was playing 10, 15 years ago, there was a handful of guys in the gym and not only is everyone in the gym now, but there's a lot more guys taking the Bryson route and benching 100 kilos or 200 pounds and squatting and deadlifting and doing all of this. Is it is it going to impact their careers long-term? Are we going to start seeing shorter careers? Is that a problem? I mean, should they be worried? Listen, this is not a new thing. This is I started doing this, you know, 13, 14 years ago. I started looking at the players that were top of the world rankings. You had the likes of Tiger and Ernie and Phil and VJ and Retief. Big, strong lads, big shoulders. Um, you know, golf course was changing even back then. You, you know, it was possible to get it a long way down the hole and gouge it out of the rough. So this has not just happened, you know, in the last five minutes. And 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 as for, you know, career lengths going to change, I think they'll get longer, if anything. These lads are going in the in the gym and making themselves stronger, but they're strengthening up in the right areas. This is, this is, the stuff that they do is very specific and it's preventative. It's going to stop them getting injuries rather than create injuries. They're making themselves bigger so they can swing the golf club at faster speeds and, and you know, the muscles that they're, they're building up you know, are going to protect them rather than hurt them. All right. Well, I referenced, I was going to come back to your uh, your marriage. And a, a couple of weeks ago, you, you married Helen in Vegas. Talk it through. Uh, talk us through that experience. Yeah, we got tired of putting it off, really. You know, we planned to get married last year and rearranged it about three times. And, uh, and, and then we had plans to do it sort of in August time this year. But when we were going to kind of that way and going to the US Open on the West Coast, I said to Helen, do you fancy getting married in Las Vegas? And she said straight away, yeah. So uh, it, we, we planned it about four weeks, or Helen planned it about four weeks in advance and did all the preparation for it and kind of just turned up. And uh, the Bellagio, the, the good people there, and a friend of mine called Arnie had it all in place. So, uh, yeah, it was very, uh, it was a very slick uh, wedding. Not, not, no drama, really. We had a great time. <laughs> well, when you, you referenced when you won uh, the Ned Bag Challenge, that was Helen's first week on the bag. Oh, no, she was on the bag before that, actually. She was on the bag uh, um, a year and a bit previous to that. Um, unfortunately, Billy's dad died, and uh, he, he, he rang me and said, I can't go to Abu Dhabi this week. So Helen was just the next week. She said, oh, I'll do it. So she came out to caddy for me in Abu Dhabi, and... Uh, um, we finished about eighth that week and then Billy came back and we carried on um, and then Billy couldn't do another week so Helen said I'll, I'll carry that week and it was the week of Denmark and I lost in a playoff to Matt Wallace that week as well so she had a pretty good record before you know the Ned Bank even even came around so uh, yeah she's she's got a pretty good average yeah absolutely I mean look having a having a significant other or a a spouse caddy for you that can certainly present its challenges but uh, it appears to be you know, a great dynamic between you two. Yeah, we got on really well. And, uh, you know, obviously on the, on the golf course, Helen knows that, you know, the decisions with clubbing and uh, yardages and wind direction and things like that, they, they've all got to be mine at the end of the day. And that's really the way I want it. You know, I, I felt like when I was working with Billy, Billy almost had too much input and was kind of telling me the way he'd play it. Whereas, you know, I, I wanted more responsibility uh, to get it clearer in my own mind. So I, I do have that now. You know, there's only really my opinion. But the great thing about Helen is she knows me mentally better than anybody else. And she listens to my psychologist and picks up tips from him. So she's really able to um, be a psychologist out on the golf course 
for me and uh, you know keep me in that nice place of uh, you know focused but relaxed. Is it fair to say having Helen there alongside you out on the golf course has she helped to necessarily say rejuvenate you but certainly inspire you as well the last three four seasons? Yeah, definitely. You know, um, give me a new way of kind of approaching it and looking at it, and a, and a, um, a more fun way of looking at it. And you know, I'm able to just treat it for what it is, really. Just a, just a game. Uh, it's not life or death, and uh, you know, just be really relaxed about it. Have perspective. Have perspective about the game. Well, you spent the bulk of your career living in, in the north of England where you grew up, but you did, you did have a stint for a couple of seasons over in, uh, in Florida. You're back in the UK now. Tell me about the, the Florida experience because, uh, you know, I know having spent 10 years in the US myself as a foreigner, I mean, I, I loved it over there, but it's, there's certainly a lot of challenges that are presented when, uh, when you are a foreigner and it is a foreign land. And uh, how did, I know you were in West Palm Beach, which is a, a golf mecca, but... Uh, how was the experience there, and why the move back to the UK? Yeah, I think uh, I think if you're going to play the PGA Tour full time, be serious about it. Maybe not, you know, split the two tours like I do. I think you know it's it's essential that you really live in the states, uh, especially the way the format is now with the FedEx Cup, and you know if you miss a few weeks, you drop down that. So I think it's important to uh, um, you know look at, at the way. Your, your schedule is going to be and what exemptions you've got um, and, and your life around that. I, I now play both tours and um, are living back in the, the UK. Um, you know, most, most of my family is here. My daughter still lives in Florida with her mum, but, um, you know, it makes sense to just live here at the moment. If I'm going to play in the States uh, a little more, maybe I'll, you know, look at getting a place in Florida. Um, you know, I'm exempt for the next year or so, a year and a half, and then I'm 50, so I'll be playing uh, Champions Tour events. So who knows what the next, uh, you know, three, four years is going to, what, what it's going to present. You know, like we were talking earlier, if I, you know, I did get the Ryder Cup captaincy. That's obviously the one I'm looking to is, is going to be in Rome, so that's more this way as well. So there's a lot of things to, a lot of balls to juggle and plates to spin at the moment. Well, it was actually going to be my next question. You did say that you'd, you'd join the Champions Tour. I mean, at 48 years old, is there plans there to split the two tours like Phil's doing or will you solely focus on one? Well, if I keep playing well and I keep get, you know keeping my card on the PGA Tour, there could be three tours to juggle. So that's a, lot of, uh, that's a lot of paperwork, getting those three schedules out in front of you and picking which tournaments you want to play. It's, uh, it's hard enough splitting the European Tour and the PGA Tour at the moment without throwing the Champions Tour in and senior majors and things like that. So there will come a time where, you know, I'm not competitive on the main tours anymore. So, you know, and I'll focus myself more on the Champions Tour. But uh, while I'm competitive, you know, I like, I like going out and testing myself. You want to test yourself against the best players in the world, don't you? So while you're competitive and you still, still think you can, you've got an edge and you can uh, contend, I want to go out there and, you know, show the young lads what I've got. Or does Phil winning at Kiowa at the age of 50, does that do something to inspire you? Yeah, definitely. But, you know, do you not think that was helped by maybe winning a couple of Champions Tour events the previous few months running into that? You know, gave him a taste of winning again and, um, you know, getting, getting under the, that pressure of, you know, trying to, to win a tournament. And then maybe that helped him out when it came around to the PGA Championship at Kiowa. So one can help the other, can't it?
Yeah, absolutely. You're going to knock him off his perch as the oldest major winner? <laughs> well, who knows? You know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't play the game now trying to put any expectation and pressure on myself. So, you know, I try and go out and just enjoy whatever tournaments I'm playing in. You know, I'm 48 years of age and I'm still 27th in the world and getting into the Masters and the US Open and the Open Championship and all the big events and the World Golf Championships. So rather than, you know, looking at them and putting pressure on myself saying, yeah, I want to win that one or I want to win this one, just go out there and enjoy just being involved still. Well, Lee, it's obviously well well known, uh, your affinity with uh, horse racing. You had Ascot last week, uh, I guess, Going forward, uh, is there going to be a little bit more focus uh, around the horses? I've got about as many as I want at the moment. <laughs> I'm involved. You know, the more you get, the more the more bills you get, uh, the more you end up paying out. And they eat while you're asleep, which is uh, which isn't a part of the problem with horses. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm involved in about twelve at the moment, which is a good number, but both jump and flat. So hopefully, uh, down the line, I'll get a few more runners at Ascot again. Um, I've got three going at Musselburgh on uh, on Monday, which might all have chances. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, other sportsmen, they play golf when they want to get away from their sport. But, you know, golfers, what can you do? You can't, uh... well, although I have started skiing in recent years, it's maybe a little bit dangerous. But horse racing, you know, has always been a passion of mine. And, uh, you know, when you earn a few quid, uh Got to spend it on something. So, uh, you know, got into horse racing a few years ago now. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a good distraction from, uh, from golf. It's, uh, you know, it takes my mind off it and uh, it's a good day out. It certainly is. I've only been to Sandown there in the UK. I haven't been to Ascot, but uh, a wonderful experience. Uh, your affiliation with Close House and, uh, and hosting the British Masters, which is one of the, well, it's been revitalised the last few years and the European Tour, they've been doing a great job in having Danny Willett, Luke Donald, yourself, Justin Rose hosting the event. Uh, that must be, uh, you must be full of pride, I guess, in, uh, in hosting such a prestigious event at a venue that uh, is close to your heart. Yeah, I've been, uh, I've been associated with Close House for about 10 years now. So, um, and I've just signed for another five. So, um, you know, it's a, good, it's a great association. I got on well with Graham. Uh, Wiley and, and everybody up there at Close House. Um, it's a good golf course, as you know, it showed when it's ho- hosted the uh, British Masters a couple of times. Um, and, you know, as, having been a, a past winner, you know, I know it's a it's a very prestigious trophy to win. Um, and it's a prestigious uh, championship to to hold, uh, you know, at your course and be the be the host of. So, uh, um, yeah, it's, it's a, they've done a, you know, Pre-COVID, they started it up, and uh, you know, about six years ago now, and you know, having having a, a English or a British host, and you know, that Sky and got got involved early on in the European Tour, and it was it was a, it was a great idea, really, and hopefully they'll do a few more tournaments, uh, you know, to try and lure better fields in, and uh, you know, we've gone to some great English venues so far, and maybe with it being the British Masters, they'll move it around the UK a little bit more now. Um, obviously, Close House has had it in Woburn and the Grove and the Belfry, um, Walton Heath, and uh, I think it's getting back to you know the prestigiousness of where it was at before. Yeah, it's great to see, isn't it? And, and what about the junior golf scene? Uh, Robert Rock, you know, he he uh, he has a, a junior golf tour throughout the UK. I've just noticed recently that Tommy Fleetwood's uh, put his name to a junior tour as well. Is that something that interests you? Are you going to get more involved with uh, grassroots golf there in England? Yeah, I've, I've run junior events for 20-odd years now. So um, it, it's nice, you know, when you become a more established player and 
you know, you get a name. It's nice to put something back into the sport. Um, the English Golf Union were only on this morning about becoming an ambassador for the English Golf Union, which, you know, interests me. You know, I came through the amateur ranks and uh, played for the England boys, youth and men's team. So, uh, you know, it's nice to give a little bit back and, uh, you know, find the, the superstars of the future. You mentioned before when we were talking about Bryson that you played with him at the Australian in Sydney, which is five, ten minutes up the road from where I am right now. One of the very first tournaments that I remember uh, watching on television, uh, not trying to make you feel 48 at all, but when you won the Australian Open, <laughs> beating my hero at Metropolitan in uh, 1997. Uh what I'm trying to say is, are we going to see you back down under post-COVID? Are we going to see you play here again? Well, it was, it was my hero too, uh, Ewan. So, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, growing up, I wanted to be just like Greg Norman. You know, the way he played the game, that swashbuckling style and went for all the flags. And sometimes it cost him tournaments, but, you know, great to watch, wasn't he? And uh, yeah, that's one of my favourite wins, beating him in a 4 all playoff for the Australian Open in 97. If not my favourite win. And uh, yeah, you know, once this is, you know, all over and Australia opens its borders up again, it, yeah, it'd be lovely to come back down there. It's one of my favourite places, especially Sydney. Sydney's one of my favourite cities to visit. Some great golf great. courses down there. Yeah, yeah, I remember, I, remember, I remember going down there in 1994, my first ever year on tour and playing uh, a New South Wales golf club in Royal Sydney. Uh, and, it, you know, it was just a, a, an incredible trip. And we had a great time. I want to ask you about technology. Uh, when you turned pro there in the early 90s, it's come a long way in, in 28 years. And again, like I mentioned with course architecture, there's a huge conjecture, not just on Twitter, but you know, certainly within the game itself about uh, rolling the golf ball back and have club heads gotten too big. What's your take on it all? Well, I, I wondered where you were going when you said technology, because I'm probably the worst person to ask. If you were asking me to work an iPhone or something like that, I'd barely turn it on, but... Um, I, I, they're going to find it really difficult to, to turn technology back. You know, where else in the where else in the world really um, do you do you stop progress? Which is exactly what it is. You know, it's uh, you know the golf club manufacturers and the golf ball manufacturers. Are, you know, or the, there's a set set paper of rules, and you know they've stuck to them, and they, they've just tried to improve all the time, which is what everybody tries to do in life. You know, in whatever. Um, role they're in um, and it's going it, it's virtually impossible to tell them you know you can't be as good as you are now you know and roll it back now so you know that, that, that horse has bolted I'm afraid as far as I'm concerned At 48 years old you're, you're at a time in your career where a lot of players have, have walked away they've had enough they've, they're pursuing other interests we've spoken about the, the inspiration but you appear to be as uh, have as much desire and be enjoying it as much as you ever have yeah, I think uh, I think that the obviously physically you don't you're not quite as strong as you get older and you know maybe not so flexible. But I think it's the mental side of the game that really starts to you know golf's a really mental sport and I think uh, you know it, it starts to get to you and, and it drags you down in certain areas. You also get other priorities in your life, you know, with family and things like that. So, um, but I you know I've still got the will to go out. I was in the gym before I came on here with you, here with you. So I've still got the will away from the golf course to do the hard work and put the the hard grafting away from the golf course that nobody sees. Uh, and whilst I've got that, mm. I think I can keep my game to a good enough level where I can contend and uh, and keep giving myself chances to go out and play well. Well, post 
playing, whether whether all is said and done at the age of 55 or 60, 65, whenever it is, do you, do you see yourself remaining in the in the sport or are you going to happily wander off into the sunset? Who knows? I'm not putting any uh, any time restriction on it or limit on it and, you know, just having fun with it. You know, while, I, while I'm still motivated to keep working hard, then I just keep ticking along, see what happens. I still love playing golf, you know. I, I, I love I, I love playing golf. So, you know, why would you kind of look for the end of that or wish that to end? You know, I love going out and practicing, and I still enjoy all that aspect of it. So, you know, golf's been golf's given me a great life. So, you know, I want to keep doing it and hang on to it as long as I can. Is there anything specific you've done to retain that passion? Because it's very easy to to burn out and get sick of it. I mean, have you have you been more specific about the way you've practiced as you? career's gotten on? Have you spent less time out there, more time enjoying the cities and the, and the places you visit? Yeah, certainly over the last few years, you know, taking a bit more of it, you know, all in the travel and, and maybe not, you know, drilled as many balls on the range after play and things like that. Maybe taking time to, you know, look around at the cities that I've been to. I played a little bit less as well, um, you know, over the last few years. Um, although this year, you know, I, I can feel right now in the middle of the season that I've played a lot this year, a lot this year. So, you know, maybe rein that in a little bit. It, it, it's looking like being 28 tournaments this year or 29, which is probably five or six too many. So maybe next year play a few less. Um, but I'm in, a, I'm, in a, I'm in a comfort zone where I can, you know, pretty much dictate my own schedule and do my own thing and uh, not, have to, not have to play any events where I don't, don't want to be there. You spent the first half of the year predominantly in the US. The second half of the year, are we going to see you remain predominantly in, in Europe or will you go back for the FedEx playoffs and obviously Ryder Cup as well? Yeah, a lot of it's been kind of COVID dependent and you know the fact that America's a lot more, a lot more open than Europe and the restrictions aren't as, uh, as harsh. Um, it's been a lot easier to play in Florida and Texas and places like that than it has in Germany and unfortunately, um, and the UK. The, the next few weeks, I'm, I'm going to be in Scotland and the, the Open Championship. But then after that, you know, because I've done so well in, on the PGA Tour, I'm 40th in the FedEx. I'm going to be over there playing in the uh, World Golf Championship and then seeing how far I can go in the uh, FedEx playoff events. Uh, then a little bit of a stint back in Europe. And then towards the end of the year, I'll probably play a few more events on the PGA Tour again. Um, you know, try, try and get off to a, a good start in that fall series that they have. Because if you don't play... Um, at the end of the at the end of the year and get off to a decent start, you find yourself a bit behind the eight ball for when next year starts up again. Well, we certainly wish you all the very best for twenty twenty one and beyond. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the Life on Tour podcast today. We we look forward to watching the rest of the year play out. My pleasure. Thanks, you.